Before we dive into existential psychology, I wanted to cover the topic nostalgia briefly because it's such an interesting and fascinating conversation. My first question when I was thinking of nostalgia is the history. At what point does the topic of nostalgia go from this abstract kind of flimsy theory to something that is taken seriously in the world of psychology? The history of nostalgia it does, is complicated, and it's not like there's a single point where this happened. But what you can see is if you, if you go back to the late 1600s, which was when the term nostalgia was coined, you do see a, an attempt at a scholarly approach because it was very much supposed to be a medical condition. And there was all sorts of speculations about the brain and different processes involved. But it wasn't, it wasn't scientific at all. And then you can see, oh, you know, you can fast forward to the mid 20th century and that you started to see really people in advertising and consumer psychology take interest in, in it. And there were, there were other people, there were some sociologists and other people kind of speculating about it. Um, but it was really like marketing researchers that started to try to quantify how much we are motivated by our longing for the past. And marketing, of course, what they were really interested in, what do we buy based on that? So, you know, there was early research that turns out that men tend to like cars that are, remind them of their youth. And you can see this in, in other areas too. Um, but then it wasn't until really the last 20 years that you started to see a more systematic and scientific approach the nostalgia, you know, looking beyond just simple correlations into like actually, you know, doing a bunch of different experiments in which we try to randomly assign people to different conditions to see how nostalgic reflection actually influences other types of cognitions, emotions, motivations, and, and, and related issues. It's interesting to hear that there was a spark for marketers and buying decisions because I actually had a note here you know, I see it all the time, advertisers on even this podcast, or you think of the role of legacy movies, where we'll do sequel after sequel, or nostalgic uh, cover songs, where artists are now remaking songs from 20 years ago. So it, it, it does seem like this affects buying decisions. Um, and why is that? Why, why do we pull out the pocketbook when we feel nostalgia? Yeah, well, part of that is we, I mean, we buy things that we, we enjoy and we, we think we get some value out of, which really speaks to, okay, well, what is it about your past? Because on the one hand, you might say as a consumer, you should crave novelty. You should want new experiences. You should want things, you, know, you should want to make purchases to allow you to do things you haven't done before. Um, but what, you know, what, what the early marketing researchers observed and which is, really only like further supported by our more careful experimental research is a lot of the things we value connect us to the past. And this doesn't mean that people are, are just trying to relive the past. It means they want to connect some aspect of their past that they find personally meaningful or informative to their current life and even to their future goals. So to take the example of like the making sequels to movies, Sure, sometimes they're not very imaginative and not even very good, and they are kind of cash-ins. But a lot of times what people are interested in is, hey, there's a story that I would thought was really cool when I was young, and I have a lot of memories wrapped around that. 
probably memories with friends or family or, or other things going on. And I would like to preserve some element of that, but make it more relevant to today, to cultural changes, to life changes, the things I'm interested in today. And I think, I think really where you can see some cool innovation and creativity and entertainment is when, they, when they're able to capture that spark from the past, but then do something new or different that gets you thinking about in a different direction or maybe makes it more applicable to you know current challenges and issues so i think nostalgia can can be done in a way that's actually very creative and and novel um that doesn't mean it always is um, but we, we definitely feel some desire to have some kind of continuity or connection with the past it's interesting you mentioned that spark that must be such an art form because you think of technology how i want to spend on we we're just talking about our macbooks i want to spend on the new apple product i want to see what the future is but there's also the pull to the past. So finding that spark and creativity is almost like an art form. But you mentioned that the feelings of childhood we briefly talked about. Is there, is there any truth to my follow-up thought that if somebody frames their childhood as a poor experience, that they are less likely to care about nostalgia, less likely to make decisions based on nostalgia if they have framed their earlier memories as negative. Yeah, so I think there, part of that is true in the sense that if you're trying to get a benefit from nostalgia, let's say for instance, a social benefit, a lot of nostalgic experiences involve close others. And so if you feel like, well, actually my past is full of, of relationship failures, or I, feel, I don't feel necessarily attached to, you know, to certain people in the past, then what am, how is that going to help me in the present? So I, I, I think there is, there is an element of that, but, that, but that's a partial, um, that's only part of the story because another way of thinking about it is most people, um, luckily, their past isn't just all bad or at all good. And even bad experiences in the past can be educational. So you can, you can actually find some interesting nostalgic stories from people. So for instance, we collected data from older British adults, this was you know almost 20 years ago, and a lot of them had childhood memories that were during World War II, and some of these were very traumatic memories. And at, but at the same time, like there's all this upheaval and stress and anxiety and fear, but that was juxtaposed with life lessons about the, how how precious life is, um, and how important family is, and you know stripping away kind of the, the, some of the nonsense of life and getting really focused on what's most meaningful. And so even, even negative life experiences can be clarifying and can be inspirational and can, if nothing else, give people some sense of like what not to do <laughs> and how to learn a lesson. And so I think that, um, I think that nostalgia has this, that, that kind of emotional complexity as well. It's not just happy memories. When we think about consumerism, of course, we think about, Oh, like I really liked Star Wars when I was a kid. It made me happy. And so I'm nostalgic about it. But a lot of the deeper memories that involve life's challenges and difficulties can have elements of nostalgia, even if, even if they cause some pain. And it is, a, it is an emotion that's pleasure mixed with pain. Um, and so I, I, I think that's a, that's a distinguishing feature of nostalgia compared to other types of, of memories, perhaps. On that note, 
Is there a theory or working theory for the evolutionary or survival benefit for experiencing nostalgia? Is there a, a working theory that a lot of people are behind? So I wouldn't say there's necessarily a working theory. I mean, it would be easy to to kind of tell a story of nostalgia as adaptive. And I certainly think that, you know, based on all the research that we've done that show all of its psychological and motivational functions, that that, that makes sense. Um, but, I, but we haven't necessarily like explicitly couched it in evolutionary terms. But I think if you think about the the functions of a lot of uh, of a lot of cognition, this you know, so nostalgia has this cognitive element in that it's memories, right? We're we're reconnecting with memories, but it also has this very affective or you know emotional element, which is that there's like I said, there's some pleasure, there's some pain, um, there's loss, but there's also gratitude, and I do think all you know certainly in the emotions literature, there's a lot of work on the evolutionary advantage. Of both positive and negative emotions, what they, how they inform us, and how they guide cognition and and goal setting, and so I think nostalgia kind of fits within that framework as well. So I want to pivot to existential psychology for those who are interested in nostalgia, which is very fascinating. Your video on TED's page, "Why Do We Feel Nostalgia," is going to be linked in our description. It's very interesting and to the point. But going to existential psychology, and forgive me for going so wide. But can you give me a pretty simple or basic definition for what is existential psychology? So I mean, the simplest, the simplest um, way to describe it would be existential psychology really you know, concerns the psychological study of big existential questions, you know, questions related to the nature of our existence. But that can fall into different categories. So there's a there's a bunch of people in existential psychology who study the unique awareness of mortality. And so what does it mean to be an organism that, on the one hand, strives to, for survival, wants to avoid threats and stay alive and healthy as long as possible, but on the other hand, is acutely aware of the inevitability of our demise? And so does that create interesting cognitive dissonance for humans to be like, I know I'm going to die and I don't, you know... But I'm doing all this stuff to avoid death. Um, so that so the, there's people that do that. Um, there's broader questions about meaning in life, with, which of course connects to death, because a lot of times when we think about immortality, what we do to to, to comfort ourselves is to say, well, I want to live a, a you know, I, I can't do anything about the fact I'm going to die, but I can make an impact. I can I can have some part of me that transcends my my earthly mortality. That could be religious, that could be symbolic, that could be cultural and, and professional. Um, but also there are questions about free will. Um, there, you know, there are questions about, um, you know, our social connections, you know, related to loneliness and isolation. Like, can people really get me? Do people really understand me? How do I connect my unique individual experience to other people's experiences? So really things wrapped around those questions that are, are um, really about being a very intelligent organism that's able to reflect on our own um, existence and you know, our own place in the world. On a personal level, what drove you to take this career path and uh, what was your spark of motivation to, to learn the ins and outs? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not really sure why... Um, you know, I was especially interested in existential psychology. When I was an undergraduate student, I was very interested in philosophy. 
in general and these big questions. Um, I remember I had a I had a philosophy professor that said, "Don't go to graduate school philosophy; you'll never get a job." <laughs> and so, you know, there there was a practical a, a practical interest too, and in like, well, what can I do that I can gain employment? And you know, I was you know, I ended up becoming very fascinated in in psychology. And there's a, you know, there's a field called social psychology that is is not inherently existential psychology, but it gets to these questions, some of these questions, especially about human cultural and social life. And so I started going down that path. But then when I got to graduate school, I discovered that, oh, there are actually empirical psychologists of so people doing, you know, quantitative research on how people grapple with these big questions. And so I can actually perhaps pursue some of my philosophical interests, but using more of the modern tools of empirical science. When thinking of like grappling with these impossibly big questions, is there any truth to the cliche ignorance is bliss? Are there some people who will be less happy, more anxious, more depressed by asking these questions? Um, that's a big question mark that we've asked a lot on this podcast, but you know, these questions, they don't lead to clear-cut answers. And would you say some people are happier leaving these questions alone? Yeah, it, it, it's almost like that. What's that? Maybe you know this. What's the saying in Spider-Man? With great power comes great responsibility. It, it's something like that, right? I mean, I, you know, being, an intelli being intelligent like humans is like saying like great intelligence comes with, with, with great anxiety. <laughs> um, so it is true that higher levels of self-consciousness you know our ability to introspect on ourselves spending time in our own heads is a recipe <laughs> for anxiety and distress we can run not only you know about the big questions about death and, and meaning but even you know relatively day-to-day -day concerns such as giving you know ask students if they like giving a public lecture or, you know what I mean? Or, you know, concerns about, like, are people going to make fun of me based on what I wear? I mean, all the self-consciousness that's involved with being a human being, starting in a relatively early age as our brains really develop and we become our own people, when, you know, when we're um, kids and adolescents, um, it comes with anxiety. It comes with distress. And so on the one hand, yes, you could imagine that, well, we, you know, we might be more you know we might be better adjusted psychologically if we just weren't introspective about these things but on the other hand part of what makes life um, fulfilling and part of what's allowed us to do so many cool things as a species is our intelligence and so i i i think there is a you know there's a there was a book written i think it was in you know maybe in the 90s called um by social psychologist mark leary called the curse of the self and it was kind of a recognition of that. Like being a self-conscious organism comes with, you know, all the fears and anxieties associated with that level of intelligence. Um, but I would say uh, a fulfilling and a meaningful life also means, you know, grappling with these issues. And, and so I think that, yeah, it can cause stress, but it can also be a source of inspiration. In addition to that, you know, there are practical things that people can do such as if you find yourself sitting around and like just introspecting about your existential condition all the time and you find it really depressing, go out and do things. Act, you know, like get out of your head, take action. Because as it turns out, being engaged in the world, going out, trying to make a difference, working, helping others, making friends, um, having families, these things take you, 
you know, you know, they're, they're cognitively involved, but they take you out of your head and they put you into the world. And I think that you can, you can work on balancing that as well. That was very well put, but this would all, that would also lead to what is terror management theory and why is it so important? So terror management theory is a specific theory within the existential psychology tradition that's very much focused on specifically on the awareness of death. And so uh, the reason it's called terror management theory is the idea or the proposal from the theory, which is, which is actually based on the writings of, of Ernest Becker, who won a Pulitzer Prize, non nonfiction Pulitzer Prize, I think in the early 70s, um, for his book, The Denial of Death. And basically the idea that they propose is that um, being aware of, of death is terrifying. Like being an organism motivated to live and fully realizing that you could die. And not only could you die, you could die today. You could get hit by a bus today. Um, you could have a tumor growing in you that, you know, will, is slowly killing you. Um, all sorts of things could happen. So it's not only, not only are you going to die, but you can die for reasons that are difficult to predict or control. And so according to terror management theory, that has the potential at least to create a considerable amount of anxiety or terror. But of course, people aren't cowering in the corner afraid. They're, they're living their lives. In fact, we do risky things all the time that actually put us in danger. And so the theory you know, tries to explain that. How do we live fully in the world knowing the inevitability of our mortality? When the theory says that, well, people adopt certain strategies as a way to mitigate their potential anxiety about death. These include cultural worldviews, so whether they're religious or secular, that order the world and give us some sense of meaning and, and ideally some sense of transcendence, you know, that, you know, part of me lives on in some way. Um, and also self-esteem, you know, that gives me like, that it's my individual like project within a broader cultural framework of meaning. And so according to the theory, um, if you have self-esteem and if you're invested in a cultural worldview that keeps the, you know, that kind of suppresses the, the potential, um, Fear of death, and that's just, that's just one specific theory. There, you know, there are other theories that focus more broadly on anxiety, on existential anxiety, not just death anxiety, but other types of anxieties. But that's been a very prominent theory, and it has, you know, there there is a, a kind of a, a long-standing de debate about specific things of the theory that you know that we don't have to necessarily get into. But one thing I do want to note that I think the, the theory should get a lot of credit for, whether you agree with it or not, is it really pushed existential psychology into mainstream social psychology. And a lot of people weren't asking these types of questions because they thought they were too abstract or too philosophical. Some social psychologists don't think they're even interesting questions. They're like, oh, who cares about, that's for theology and that's for philosophy. But I think what the terror management theory and you know its early researchers did is said, no, these are important questions. Um, whether you uh, agree with our theory or not, Clearly, humans grapple with big questions about the nature of their life and death that warrant empirical investigation. While I kind of understand, well, obviously understand why we would evolve for a survival benefit of understanding that we can die, understanding that death is inevitable, I understand that as a survival benefit, but our urge or our motivation to understand or have meaning I guess I'm a little bit more confused of where that would come in as a survival benefit or why as humans that we are so drawn to the question of meaning versus other 
uh, animals. D- does that make any sense? Why? No, no. Why meaning matters for survival? Yeah. So I, I think different people would answer it differently. One way to think about it is, you know, relates to what you just said about compared to other animals. I think you could make another. I think you can make an argument that other animals also, in their way, make make meaning. And so, what I mean by that is, you can think about meaning at multiple levels of complexity. So, at a very low cognitive level, you might say meaning making is just basic sense making. So, I need my environment to make sense. If my environment's chaotic, it's not predictable. If if the laws of physics change day to day, um, then I can't survive like i can't live i need to be i'm a i'm a pattern recognition machine but i that's not just me that's my dog too that's other animals right they need to make sense of their environment so you can think about even at a very very low level of um the world needs to make sense right um in order for me to navigate it now if you if you start to go up in levels of self-consciousness and intellect what you'll find is because I can introspect, because I can you know, think about myself and my place in the world, in addition to just basic, make, you know, basic sense-making of the world, I also want to make sense of my existence. I want to make sense of my life. And that actually, just like being able to navigate the world based on some patterns and rules is helpful for me being successful at securing food and shelter and, and things like that, being able to make sense of my life it's helpful for helping me organize myself in groups, you know, to connect with others, um, to pursue goals and interests that are, you know, that maybe are really, really long-term focused. I mean, one thing that's cool about humans is we don't just live moment to moment in a stream of consciousness. We do things that might not be realized for decades, right? We buy homes and pay on mortgages for decades, for decades and things like that. Well, you have to be able to imagine a, a distant future to pursue those goals. Some of our goals extend beyond our own lives. Like a scientist might say, I don't know if there's going to be a cure for this disease I'm working on in my lifetime, but my research contributes to a, a bigger project that's in the pursuit of that goal. Meaning serves that higher level um, like kind of survival focus, like of moving beyond just day-to-day existence and the potential chaos and uncertainty and stress that goes with that to organizing my life in a way that helps keep me focused and on track and in the pursuit of big, big projects. It's really interesting how you talked about the levels of meaning. And even in me asking that question, it's very like ego driven where it's like, why do humans need to know the meaning of life? You're like, well, actually, there are various levels of meaning. So that's very interesting. But in a, a very real world example, let's say someone's listening right now, they're in their mid 20s. What is a, the greatest predictor of a young person feeling like they have meaning in a very real world um, setting? Yeah, so th- there's actually research on different facets of meaning or you know, different, you know, different dimensions. And one of the things that, that people find is it's really that sense or the thing that seems to matter most is that is, you know, what we call a sense of mattering. And so I need to feel like I'm making a contribution that that matters. So it's not just I want to be liked or I want to be successful or all these things that, that we like and that, you know, certainly can elevate our status. But I want to feel like I'm doing something that makes a difference and that it matters. And so as far as other predictors, well, when you ask people what gives their life meaning, um, the most common response you'll get is family and friends. 
And if you dig a little deeper into that, it's not just because people like being surrounded by other people. Family and friends help you matter, like because you do things for people and they do things for you. So, it could, you know, so it so a lot of meaning is very, very interpersonal and very social, but not in a superficial level of I just like, you know, hanging out with people. It's very much I need I want people to I want to matter in people's lives. And so I need something to do. And that can help explain why meaning connects to work. So, you know, feeling like you have a profession or a job or something in which you're um, providing for yourself. So, you, you know, you're, you're self-sufficient in some ways. You're helping take care of your family. You're making a difference in the community. You're, you're contributing to something that you think helps society and the broader civilization flourish. Um, those are things that help you matter. And they're very much related to, like I said, to, to relationships, because what's the point of... What's the point of making a contribution to the world if, uh, if there are if it's not populated um, by people, right? Amongst young people, you would think social media helps us connect, helps create a large sense of community. But I would ask, um, does social media help or hurt uh, the conversation of meaning and belonging? So I think the the answer is probably um, both. So, you know, as you probably know, there's a big ongoing de debate about whether or not social media is bad for people's well, for young people's well-being. And there's people that have certainly argument, argued and even documented that what certain ways that social media use um, predicts or even increases anxiety and depression and things like that. So to the extent that social media takes people out of like deep relationships that are engaging and has people spending their time scrolling or, you know, the, um, you know, being ostracized and the whole fear of missing out issue and all that. Those things seem kind of bad, but at the same time, social media can give people new opportunities to connect. I mean, if you, um, you know, being someone that's from a relatively small town in, in Southwest Missouri, um, and, you know, I didn't grow up at the, with the internet. But having the opportunity to connect with people who have similar interests, I think it would be be very cool. So I, 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 you know, I'm I'm definitely not one of those people that's totally anti like social media or anti technology or anything like that. I do think there are like anything else. I think there are some concerns that people have raised that are valid that should that we should you know think about ways to to make improvements on social media. But I also think that the internet, technology, social media. Um, have certainly given people new opportunities and new ways to explore ideas and connect with other people that can actually help them pursue the, the very things that, that they find meaningful. In a few previous episodes, I've had uh, Andy Norman and Chris Bale on, and we talked about behavior change and how to really change someone's mind. And I actually, in doing research for this, I heard you talk about how the in climate change specifically, talking apocalyptic, that there's no hope, that the world's ending in this amount of years isn't the right way to go about it. And that actually, like, I took a note right when I heard that, because that struck a chord with me. And it's all I see online, whether it's political, whether we're talking climate change, whether it's wealth inequality, it's always so apocalyptic, it's always so fear-based. And while I'm sure fear is motivating, of course, there's no hope. There's no optimi optimism anymore. And even think about Obama's 2008 hope campaign. The word hope, it's a beautiful word. And I feel like a lot of people have forgotten about it. 
So I want to talk a little bit about behavior change in young people, why the apocalyptic messaging doesn't work, and why maybe we can shift to some more optimistic tones when we're trying to actually make meaningful change. Yeah. So if you think about pessimism or hopelessness, you know, essentially what you're saying is, well, we know you're going to do something with your time. It's, you know, you're going to do something with your time. You're going to have goals and interests, you know, right? you're, you're going to move forward with life. But if we say there's, that there's really no hope to accomplish X, whatever that is, that's a pretty clear cue if you're a rational human being to don't spend your time doing anything focused on that. And so if you have a general worldview about, well, everything about the future is hopeless, then it gives you an excuse to say, well, I should just indulge and I should just enjoy my life and do what I want. And so I, I feel like the, 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 the hopelessness and the pessimism is a very hedonistic response because it's saying, well, you don't have any responsibility to do anything because that would be a waste of your time as a rational human being. And so that, you know, that's obviously not helpful if you, if you actually think there's things we can do to further human progress. And so, I, you know, as far as to why that message seems to have taken root, I'm not really sure, but if, I, I think it does relate to these other issues of anxiety, of growing anxiety, social distrust, um, because what happens, the, the psychological states are, are interrelated. So what happens is if you feel anxious, you, you know, and if you feel distressed in some way or depressed, like you turn inward. You, you know, you don't want to go out and take risks and try new things and be open-minded. You become more defensive and dogmatic. And so, if you know, so I think when people are in these kind of anxious states, and if you, I've seen numbers like from the Pew, you know, Research Center that um, a high percentage of young people think people are just out for themselves and they're not trustworthy. If you have that mindset, then it does just kind of turn you inward. And then these, you know, these different things feed off of each other. Well, I don't think people can be trusted. So obviously we're not going to be able to come together and solve this problem. So it's hopeless. But that causes more of that feeling. Well, if things are hopeless. What's the point of taking a risk, putting myself out there and trying to trust people? And so I think, you know, they're very self, um, they're very kind of like self-reinforcing attitudes around fear and anxiety. Um, but if you feel hopeful, if you push yourself out of that and you feel optimistic and you don't feel afraid, but you feel bold and energized, then that's when you're, instead of turning inward, you, you ex cognitively expand outward. You become more curious. You become more willing to give people a chance. You become more resilient and hopeful. And, um, and so I think these are, these are the types of traits we need to encourage. And cultivate um, if we, you know, if we want to solve some of the big challenges that people say they're very concerned about. That is probably one of the most important notes I took in doing research from one of your previous interviews. You know, the number one thing I hear from our listeners and young people on social media, they feel burnt out with all the big news articles. They feel hopeless that momentum has shifted. They feel like um, if change could have happened, it would happen 20 years ago. They're already too late. You hear the word too late a lot. So the idea of introducing hope in terms of trying to market and inspire young people seems like the most important takeaway from today. So I appreciate that a lot. And I hope 
everyone takes that with them when they're trying to change behavior in a smaller, big way. Keep it light, keep it hopeful and inspirational because uh, you go on Twitter for five minutes, you're going to feel burnt out as well. Um, wrapping up, this has been discussed a lot, but I have to ask it as we wind down the episode. 2020, 2021, there's been real world isolation. People are working from home, they're doing classes from home. Beyond the social media question, have you noticed any changes in people uh, asking themselves about meaning because they are now physically, not even just emotionally, they are physically isolated? Has there been any changes in your work with how people's lives have inevitably changed? Yes. And I think one, you know, silver lining perhaps of this whole pandemic experience, which has obviously been very bad, not just because of you know, the actual disease and lives lost, but the, the economic challenges that, you know, people have lost jobs, businesses have closed, there, you know, there's been, people have been increased loneliness, mental health problems. I mean, obviously there's a bunch of, a bunch of bad things. Um, but one of the silver linings I think is that you're right. It has caused people to, to stop and to reflect on what's important in their life, in their lives. And you can see this in a number of interesting statistics. For instance, you see now a growing percentage of people interested in continuing remote work, uh, not as a way to be like, I don't want to go to work, but really as a way to say, is there an opportunity for me to live closer to family? Is there an opportunity for me to walk my kids to school and home from school? Is there an opportunity to, to think more holistically about life? And so what happens when you have big disruptions in society and in your own personal life is it breaks habit, like it breaks routine. And it puts you in a situation to say, well, maybe I could do things differently. And this is actually connects to nostalgia because one of the functions of nostalgia is that helps people really, you know, kind of focus or highlight what is important in their life. And they look back on their memories and they say, oh, like these are the things that I really cherish. I should do more of that stuff so I can build more of those types of memories in the future and in a very busy, fast-moving society like we have here in the U.S., um, I, I feel like we often don't, you know, we're often caught up in the moment and don't take that time to, to, to stop and reflect and think about, am I doing what I, what, and am, I, am I doing what I want to do? Am I doing what's best for, for my well-being and for my family? And I think the pandemic has um, given a lot of people the, the opportunity and really just, you know, if nothing else, like you said, just by being stuck at home sometimes, you know, you, you're thinking more, you're in your head a little bit more and you're thinking about, oh, what, what do I want to do? And I think it's also made people more likely to not want to take life's simple pleasures for granted, like going out with friends, going to a concert, going to a restaurant. And, and, and that can be good, too, because it makes you grateful and it makes you think, oh, yeah, there, there's something nice about like, for, for instance, for me, um, you know, early in the pandemic when it really was, well, we don't know what's going on here and we should kind of stay home as much as possible. I was still going going to work, but my building was pretty empty. Most people were working from home. It did create a sense to me of, oh, free, like to, of really valuing the freedom of movement to go do things, just to walk into a grocery store, just to go into a bar and have a beer, um, to go to the gym. And so I think I, you know, I think it certainly increased my appreciation of how fortunate we are in our modern affluent society to have access to, you know, to a, a thriving economy and lots of businesses and opportunities to, and, and, and leisure activities. 